Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just coming up to four o'clock and it's Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until six this afternoon. Coming up today and part two of the story of Aaron Hughes, a Iraq veteran against the war who actually went back to Afghanistan in 2015 and we'll hear about more about what it was like for him there. History of Libya with historian and author Brian McKinley. Update on Sri Lanka with Dr Brian Sinwaratna. The UN decision on Julian Assange, what's that, what that means. I was speaking with anti-war activist Kieran O'Reilly. Let them stay, support for asylum seekers, Jack Smith from Project Safecom. And I'll be speaking about another American base being built, this time in Jeju Island, southern South Korea, with Buddy Bell from Voices for Creative Nonviolence. But first, he's back, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when, well, weeks, and we'll do a bit of uncoordinated meandering across those weeks. For instance, a blast from the past. Former Big Supremo and former world's greatest worst treasurer, Paul, emerged from his working-class French clocks and Italian suits collections to offer the nation the latest position on the GST. Remember, he supported it when the world's greatest worst treasurer and opposed it when Big Supremo. On the principled ground, the caring business class party supported it, a a true career politician of New South Wales Socialist Party variety. Well, now he's gone one better. He opposes it and supports it, prompting the caring business class party to quote the bit where he supports it and the socialist party to quote the bit where he opposes it. Although now, true politician again, the the opposed bit seems to be winning. Big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull, a great supporter of taxing the poor to pay the rich, displaying the courage we have come to know and love in the political puppet class buckling at the knees and failing to respond to the puppeteers pulling the strings. Backstage despair as the puppeteers predict the end of the world as we know it. Exemplified by giant retail conglomerate was farmers to we crush them's Richard guard of the wealth. I do think there is an expectation in the true blue Aussie community that the government should get on with taxing the poor. Uh, So, Richard, the poor are pleading to be taxed so the rich can be better off? Exactly. There's that expectation in the true blue Aussie community, the whole community. Well, the true blue Aussie community, that is community with me, the the team on the true blue Aussie Profits Council board, for instance, and to a person, we agree the poor should pay lots and lots more taxes, not just to make the rich a little richer, but to give the poor themselves a sense of dignity, a sense of belonging, a sense of contributing. Uh, But Richard, uh, Oxfam figures have shown the richest 61 people in the world own as much as the bottom half of of 3.66 billion people. 
Yes, doesn't that go to my point? The, these figures show there is still ample room for positive readjustments to assist the trickle-down effect. It, it's a disgrace, an abuse of power, that those 3.66 billion people had so much wealth. There, the puppeteer's distress was expressed on their behalf by this morning's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review. GST would have raised $34 billion, it headlined, but announced the rich are already working on alternate ways to cut their taxes. All very academic and interesting discussion point more than anything else changed the rate on the taxes we don't pay in the first place. The Capitalist Review has been leading the pack daily admonitions for an increased GST on just everything. Thursday's pleading editorial, for instance, but no one has come up with any tax reform alternative that could, pay, could yield any bigger economic growth dividend. Apparently, no one suggested just to throw something stupid into the conversation, taxing the rich, for instance. Oh, no, sorry, the GST's a way of not taxing them. I keep forgetting. Or worse, have the rich individuals and corporates actually pay the tax they complain about not paying now? Maybe the capitalist review, the Falfax boardroom, is just being pragmatic. It knows they won't pay whatever the rate is. So it's up to the poor to keep them going, the trickle-up effect. Oh, Malcolm, what have you done? The price of cravenness, of sensing the poor mightn't be quite as enthusiastic about paying for the super-rich to enjoy tax cuts as Richard's community expectations. As the Capitalist Review's very balanced columnist Jennifer Ushit bemoaned yesterday, the super-rich might be wondering if they made the right decision changing Puppet Tiny a bit more for the bosses with Puppet Malcolm. Poor dears. The group manager tax at CSL, Peter Larson, joined the crescendo of screaming from the boardrooms when it was suggested cutting company tax and personal tax on the rich could involve a trade-off where all sorts of corporate welfare was cut. We can't have an approach, Peter spelled out the problem, which gives with one hand and takes with the other. We need to maintain the current sensible balanced approach, which gives with the one hand and gives with the other. And still on such matters, down in Clive Parmagina country, turns out Clive and the shareholders grab the profits when profits are flowing, but when the company hit a brick wall, it turned out it was owned by a shell company with no assets, and Clive and the shareholders had no responsibility for its debts. Don't ask, listener. Even Clive said he had no idea either. Well, I don't understand it myself, to be honest, were his words, and who could be more honest? But he did understand it had the odd benefit. Not that he didn't show compassion for the workers whose entitlements weren't allowed for before the profits were splashed around or politically donated to himself. After the state and federal governments rejected his most generous offer that they throw in 250 mil to help the workers, he exploded, direct quote, they don't care about the workforce in Queensland, they are just full of rhetoric and bullshit. Qualities that would abrade poor Clive's sensitivities. Fancy the public purse suggesting it's not its responsibility to meet Clive's commitments. 
not unrelated, the troubler was the association of that highly respected profession, financial advisors, warned that thousands of financial advisors could be forced out of the industry if the government proceeds with plans that they should. <laughs> Sit down, listener, and please send dear little children out of the room. This is outrageous that they should be qualified. Imagine the disasters that could occur, the association warned, if our members actually had some idea of what they're talking about, of the advice they're giving. Oh, good point. It doesn't bear thinking about. The, oops, was that the right button award, obviously went to the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, who sent a message that a journalist who wasn't too pleased over a sexist minister with a drinking problem was an effing witch to the effing witch by mistake, showing once again why this segment, along with most of the country, I suspect, so admires his capacity in the brain department. The same duffer responded to that High Court decision about sending desperates back to torture by assuring us he would send them back to torture with compassion. Yes, the word compassion dribbled from his lips, although one must wonder how an ex oh, sorry, copper and train killer interprets the word. The High Court again highlighted the great value of the separation of powers by ruling that the government's amendments to make sure the challenge to its torture policy could not possibly succeed had succeeded, that is, the amendments, showing just how invaluable is the separation of powers. Bet there's a few armed robbers and murderers out there, for instance, who wish they could just change the law to make themselves legal. Nothing like retrospective law, law after the facts, so to speak. The Socialist Party injected real compassion into the issue by attacking the government for torturing desperates. The government must find another country for them. It was all heart. Well, they could come right here in Australia, for instance. Uh, another country, Afghanistan perhaps, Sri Lanka, Iraq, Myanmar. The important word is another. Its concentration camps raise a wire and sink the boat spokesperson Richard Malls, the refugees, stressed. Big Supremo Malcolm said true blue Aussie must protect its sovereignty, whatever that meant, but we can bet the Terra Nullius people wish they'd known a thing or two about sovereignty when the first illegal no-proper-papers boat people invaded the place 228 years ago. At the tennis, down where the May Day marches used to terminate and Yarrabank speakers spoke, now handed to the rich for the rich, at one point, or between points I guess, the camera honed in on a high-profile player's feet as he was tying up a shoelace. And I noticed one shoe had left written on it and the other right. Now, I know outside their immediate sporting interests, a lot of sports people won't speak for all of them, but a lot of sports people aren't all that bright, but I would have thought. Finally, Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country government announced it would ignore this UN of the US of the UN of the world ruling that the detention of Julian Assange is illegal. In this matter, the UN of is irrelevant, it blasted. Ah, but, but, but you used the UN op to argue your invasion of the Middle East as part of the coalition of the killing and ongoing instability wherever you invaded was legal. For God's sake, are you totally stupid? Legal is legal. That is not the same as illegal. Can't you tell the difference? 
silly us. The difference is glaring. Financing the merchants of death on the one hand, exposing its hypocrisy on the other. Thank goodness we have the puppeteers to expose hypocrisy, to, to know what's good for all of us. Like Richard's community expectation. Good afternoon. And it's great to have him back. That's Mr Kevin Healy. Hi there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, Ah, ah, ah. That stands for reduce, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. Next, the second and final part of my interview with Aaron Hughes, a member of the Iraq Veterans Against the War, who recently visited Afghanistan as a member of the Voices for Creative Nonviolence delegation. He had previously been to Iraq in 2009, and this led to the Tea Project. The Tea Project comes out of my work in Iraq Veterans Against the War. In 2009, I went back to Iraq as a civilian. I went as a civilian representative to the first international labor conference in Erbil, Iraq. It was during this conference that I was able to interact directly in this very human way with Iraqis for the first time. And it was also the first time that I had Iraqi tea. You see, during my whole deployment, I was offered tea many times by Iraqis, by third country nationals, by Kuwaitis, and I always refused. I believe everyone in my unit refused. We called it Haji water. We racialized it. We dehumanized people. And uh, one way to do that was by you know, racializing, like even this offer of hospitality. You know, these third country nationals that we do convoys with, which I hope everyone knows what a third country national these individuals that are brought underneath contracts from Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, all these very impoverished communities and individuals that are brought over to Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and work underneath these contractors and underneath contractors and these contractors, and they do almost everything for the U.S. military. You know, they clean the clothes, they clean the bathrooms, they clean the shitters, they uh, cook the food, and they would run supply missions with us because we wouldn't have enough military trucks. And, you know, they would run out of food on these long convoys, and they'd come up to us, and they'd ask for food, and we'd tell them, it's not our job to feed you. I mean, completely second class. And just completely dehumanized, completely disrespected. And these individuals, despite that, would continuously offer us tea. Iraqis offer them tea despite the fact that their country is occupied by us. And that offer rejected. And it wasn't until 2009, during this conference, but hearing all these workers, these all these unions that had been outlawed underneath Saddam and were outlawed underneath Paul Brimmer's provisional government, despite the fact that the new Iraqi constitution afforded labor rights. They had outlawed, they had, Paul Brimmer had carried over Saddam's labor laws. You know, they were articulating their stories and their experiences. Amazing stories. You know, pushing the British military out of their oil fields to defend their oil fields nonviolently. These electrical workers forcing the U.S. military out of their power plants so they could keep going. 
despite the fact that they had been forced out of it originally and considered a security threat to their own power plant, their power plant that powered the water purification plant. And they strike and protest for weeks. You know, they thought they were going to get killed, really, by the U.S. military when they were demonstrating. And the central government said, you have to stop protesting and demonstrating. And they said, no, we're not going to stop. This is for our families and for our communities. And they kept at it. So I was hearing these amazing stories of these workers, and they asked me to speak. And I was like, are you kidding me? I, you know, who am I to say anything to any of these Iraqi workers? These 400 workers from all over Iraq. And they said, no, no, you have to speak. You're the representative from the peace movement in the United States, and we want you to speak. And so I went up on stage in front of these 400 workers, and I told them I was here in your country. I pointed my weapon at your families and at your communities. And for that, I'm sorry. But I'm not here for forgiveness. I'm here to take responsibility. And I told them by Aaron Watada, the first officer who refused to deploy to Iraq. I told them about Kilmiro Mejia, who first NCO who got back from Iraq and refused to redeploy. I told them about the countless other war resistors that go into jail, individuals that go into Canada, and all the soldiers like myself that were getting back and speaking out against after the talk, this guy stands up in the back of the auditorium and starts yelling something really, really loud in Arabic and starts just booking it down the stage. I think, oh, well, this is it. You know, this is going to beat the crap out of me. And that's fine. It's his country. Like, you know, it's what I deserve. It's like, it's going to be what it's going to be. You know, just as he comes up, comes up on stage, I hear a translation come through the little earpiece. I just want to come up on stage and give this gentleman a hug. And he grabs me and hugs me. I started to cry. The man I learned later was in the Iraqi military and fought against the invading forces. You know, he was in the oil union and had forced the British military out of the oil fields. And there he was, he was hugging me. So I was just crying. And uh, I guess uh, this guest from the United States crying in front of all these workers wasn't the conference organizer's idea of a good time, so they quickly kind of surrounded me and ushered me out of the auditorium and they sat me down, and they made me tea. Tea that I graciously accepted. And that was the first time I had Iraqi tea. And this hospitality and this generosity despite was something I felt was this very poetic gesture, this very humble and beautiful and human gesture, you know, a gesture that I thought was one that needed to be shared and so the tea project began with that gesture and needing to bring it back and I began to organize these performances in which I prepared tea. I wrapped in all these other stories of other veterans and specifically I wrapped in another story of a of a veteran who went on a tour with speaking tour with former Guantanamo detainees in two thousand nine. So the same year I went back to Iraq, he went to Europe I went on a speaking tour with folks that he had actually been detaining in Guantanamo. His name was Chris Arendt. He served in Guantanamo. He was one of the first people to speak out about it. One of the stories he, he always tells, as he says, is this way that we're becoming, learning how to become a concentration camp guard. He said uh, he never liked to work the day shift because all he'd want to do was apologize to them. 
And one of his jobs was to walk up and down the cells and collect this little tiny contraband that the detainees would have in their cells, which was practically nothing because they weren't allowed to have anything, no paper, no pens, no nothing. But they were given, after each dinner, they were given a styrofoam cup of tea. And after they drink their cup of tea, they would start scrawling and drawing all over these styrofoam cups because it's the only place that they had to express themselves. Well, of course, the U.S. military saw this as a security threat. And so Chris's job was to walk up and down the cells and collect these security threats and take them down to military intelligence where they'd analyze them and take pictures of them and throw them away. He said it's an absurd process, as if somehow someone was going to write something on it, throw it into the ocean and get back to somebody somewhere. It's crazy. And he said every single time he'd go into those cells to pick up those styrofoam cups, every single time he'd pick them up, that they'd just be scrawled all over just with flowers. Just flowers. And so as I'm hosting these tea ceremonies and asking people about their relationship to the global war on terror, their relationship to extra-legal detention, their relationship to love, their relationship to tea, I'm serving tea in all these porcelain cast styrofoam cups that have all these flowers scrawled all over them. I've cast a cup for every detainee that's been detained in Guantanamo with a collaborator, Amber Kinsberg, a wonderful ceramicist from Chicago, Illinois. And so that's the tea project that I uh, was one of the things I was doing when I went back to Kabul or when I went to Kabul, I had never been in Afghanistan before these past uh, Could I ask you first how you got to go to Kabul? Well, I've known Kathy Kelly for a long time. A very, very, very long time. I uh, first met her actually when I was back, when I had first started going back to school, before I was uh, involved with any kind of activism when I just started making artwork about the Iraq war, people said I needed to meet this woman that was in Iraq during the start of the, of the Iraq war. So we connected and I shared some of my artwork with her and we became friends. And um, I know she had been going on these delegations to Afghanistan, to Kabul for a long time. And um, I had actually helped other delegations members of Iraq Veterans Against the War that had served in Afghanistan go with her to Kabul and to other parts of Afghanistan in order to um, work with the Afghan peace volunteers. And so I had known about their delegations and had helped organize and helped support a few delegations, specifically with Brock McIntosh and Jacob George, which happened, I believe, in 2010 that they went on that trip or 2011, regardless. So I had known about these trips. Our friend Jacob George committed suicide a year ago in the fall of 2014. I guess his mother had spoken. There was just this idea of trying to pay homage to Jacob and his work in solidarity with the Afghan peace volunteers by sending a delegation back to Afghanistan. And this had something to do with some of his mother's wishes after he passed. That delegation didn't work out, perhaps it will in the future, but because of that and some of the kind of precursing work 
there happened to be some overlap and opportunity opened up for this trip to happen and for me to join Kathy Kelly in Kabul and, and work with the Afghan Peace Volunteers. What was your role to be? So I went for three specific reasons. I went, one, to observe as a witness. So I went as a delegate of the Voices for Creative Nonviolence, went to witness the work of the Afghan Peace Volunteers and their work at their Border Free Center, their school that they've started up, their blanket program that they had just built up, and the work that they're doing with the street kids. And I also went to work and teach two printmaking workshops at the uh, Border Free Center for the street kids that go to the center. And last reason I went was in order to bring some of these porcelain teacups to Afghanistan because my hope is to return the 220 cups that belong to Afghans that have been detained in Guantanamo to Afghanistan and also return the other 48 countries that have had citizens detained, return their cups to their countries. And so just before being in Afghanistan, I was in Istanbul returning four of the cups of the individuals that had been detained that were Turkish citizens. What was it like working with children? Fun and crazy. Yeah, uh, it was really a joy. Um, the kids, you know, they're kids. They're just, they want to get their hands dirty. I taught a, a very simple printmaking class, and so... You know, they wanted to get their fingers in all the inks and they wanted to mix up all the colors. And, you know, the first thing that we did, that I realized was, like, okay, wait, we can't do this workshop inside because we're just going to tear up this entire room. So we went outside onto the porch and I set up little printmaking sections. And kids are kids. And once they understand, you know, just how something works, they're going to explore it so they fully understand. And so they were just exploring all these inks and all these potato. We were making potato prints and lino prints. They just enjoyed and just exploring all the different ways they can make prints. And just seeing their faces after they would finish a print, they'd show it, they just, they'd just light up. It was just like, I made this thing. I created this thing. It was just a really beautiful thing to see. What did you learn about the background to these children, why they were there? A lot of different backgrounds. Many of them are internally displaced refugees. Many of them are living in very precarious circumstances. Some of them in refugee camps. Uh, many of them are living in extreme, just extreme poverty. And if they weren't going to the center, they'd most likely be working or find a way to help support their family. And uh, that's actually a part of one of the things that the center does is in order to incentivize the fact that the kids are going to school instead of out there working in the streets, they help provide rations. So they provide oil and, I believe, rice. And I'm not exactly sure. I think the other specific things change, uh, whether it's tomatoes or onions. 
in order to help support the families that are sending their kids to school. They're all survivors. They all have stories. They all have deep wounds of war stories from their, and this is true with the Afghan peace volunteers as well, the stories of their parents, whether they were still alive or not. If they were alive, if they were still able to really function, many of their fathers had been tortured or killed. You know, these kids were still just survivors. Every day they were figuring it out. You know, I think that that's a really powerful lesson. Did those children talk about a future for themselves? The kids, I didn't get to speak very much to because uh, obviously I only speak English and uh, there wasn't a lot of time for translation. So a lot of translation was just trying to get through all the chaos of making a million prints and making all this art together. But I, I did get to speak a lot with the members of the Afghan Peace Volunteers. Yeah, every single one of them. If they hadn't finished high school, they were going to finish high school. If they finished high school, then they were going to finish college. If they finished college, then they were going to get their master's. If they finished their master's, they wanted to get their doctorate. And, you know, they all wanted to find a way to support their family. They all believed in education and their family and wanted to support their family. So when they think about the future, it's, it's really through this lens of education and, and, and working hard to care for their family. And then there's this whole other side of all this volunteer work that they're doing to try and build peace. It's uh, really extremely humbling. Did it bring peace for you, in a sense, to be there with the children? Some sense of peace for you? Another sense, what has that visit done for you? How do you feel now you're home? I'm still working through it. It's a massive transition to go from one of the poorest countries in the midst of one of the longest wars, or perhaps the longest war, and to see the spirit, just the overwhelming passion and spirit you know, of these kids and, and these volunteers that are surviving and doing it and making it happen, and then they come back to the States, you know, where there is this idea of overwhelming security, excess. And that isn't really true for most of America, but there's that idea. And so, you know, I'm still working out how I feel, but I think that there's, to me, I think the thing that I'm trying the lessons, the, the learning I'm doing is from those kids and from those volunteers. It's not my own insights. You know, it's just really trying to go through and work through the things that they said. Like the young woman who's one of the volunteers. I, I can't really fully swallow this. Her father was killed by the Taliban, and she wants to meet with the Taliban in order to forgive them. She feels that she needs to do that. You know, for her, I, I explicitly say, like, this idea of forgiveness is, a, is one that I think uh, radical forgiveness is you know, something I need to process and think about. Despite all of the trauma, losing family members, being tortured, being captured, being tortured, these kids that were tortured, tell me about, you know, being tortured by the Taliban, 
That's not their identity, though. Identity is a volunteer and a student, a family member, and their ability to overcome these immense traumas with their passion and love and energy. I mean, to me, that's something I have to learn, think about. Will you go back? I think I would like to go back, though, with uh, other individuals that served in Afghanistan, where I feel like I got so much out of my trip and my return trip to Iraq in 2009. I've really longed to return back to Iraq again. It's really not a possible situation right now. And, and the reason why is I, I feel like, you know, that trip was so important. So it's easy to carry around so much guilt that it can be... Uh, really paralyzing. And, you know, the Iraqis, they don't need me to be guilty. They need me to be in solidarity with them. And I think uh, being able to support other Afghan veterans like Jacob and Brock who got to go over, but other members of Iraq veterans against the war and Afghanistan veterans against the war to make that trip. So they know when they come back that they can just double down on their efforts to transform our system of militarism here in the United States. One of the Afghan peace volunteers, one of them said, you know, they were talking through all these incidences of violent issues around U.S. militarism and U.S. military use of force and around the world historically, not just in this contemporary moment. But they were really working through the history and they said, well, you know, if Americans can realize this history and their missteps, not just in Afghanistan, not just in Iraq, not just in Vietnam, but in the Philippines, in their own country, the Native Americans, during World War II, could they take on a pacifist constitution for the rest of the world, for the security of the rest of the world, and for their own security? It's interesting, you know, Japan just pulled back from their pacifist constitution, which we helped support them create after World War II, after we dropped two atomic bombs on them. I went to Hiroshima. I went to Okinawa. I heard these people's stories. I heard their struggle to continue to push up against the U.S. military bases in Okinawa. And then just hear from that, you know, this Afghan, thousands of miles away, just raised this question of, well, Maybe America needs to pass this constitution. He wasn't saying Americans need to be pacifists. He wasn't saying, you know, he was saying maybe the country needs to think about having a pacifist constitution. Pretty radical thought. Something I have to think about. Another thing I'm thinking about, a lot about. You've got a lot to think about, though, haven't you? Does it get easier to try and work things out? When you look back to how you were in 2004, it's 2016, who are you now? I don't necessarily know if it gets easier or harder. I mean, there are some insights I feel that I had very profoundly, even in the midst of my deployment, you know, that I had come to. And that clarity is not always easy to hold on to, as our world just seems to get more and more complex. Morality seems to shift and 
become grayer and grayer. I don't necessarily think like it's become easier to work through. For me, it's become harder working through uh, the depths, the history of uh, my own country's militarism, use of violence, not for humanity, not for democracy, but overwhelmingly for greed and for power. And that power is becoming more and more complicated and nuanced. You know, as I get older, I learn more and more about how nuanced these relationships are. And even the military itself is changing. The military is downsizing. You know, the idea that we're going to be sending hundreds of thousands of troops into a country again, and most likely it will never happen again. We might be flying over, you know, hundreds of thousands of drones definitely isn't becoming easier working through and trying to figure out, okay, well, as this landscape shifts, how do I shift with it? And uh, and also it's figuring out how to acknowledge, you know, the the U.S. military isn't the only, like, issue. Taliban, ISIS, these are real fundamental things that kids I spoke with and the volunteers I spoke with had overwhelmingly been adversely affected by the Taliban, not necessarily by U.S. troops or by U.S. forces. And yet they still had a nuanced perspective where it was pretty clear to them that they didn't need any more U.S. military forces. They needed education. They needed climate justice. You know, that was one of their principles, is environmental climate justice, violence in the world, and economic inequality. That's what they're working on. For me, it's a lot to think through about how all these issues are related and uh, figure out how I can be most effective in supporting the movements to change the world and make it a better place and make it one that we can survive it. Because uh, if we don't, you know, it is a question of survival, not just with climate, but with militarism and with economic inequality. And that was part two of an interview with Aaron Hughes, who served in Iraq and Kuwait with the US military for 15 months during 2003 and 2004, and for many years now has been a member of Iraq Veterans Against the War. You are listening to 3CR. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. It's now almost seven years since the Tamil Tigers, the armed independence movement in Sri Lanka, was defeated and tens of thousands of civilians massacred in the aftermath by the Sri Lankan armed forces. When the current president, Sarasena, was elected in January last year, he promised to end the continuing and widespread human rights violations by the army and the police. Unfortunately, this has not occurred, with Sri Lankan authorities accused of allowing human rights abuses, including torture and illegal detention and gang-raping of men and women. 
But if you read the mainstream media here in Australia, you would think that everything is all right in Sri Lanka today. At the weekend, I spoke with Brisbane human rights activist Dr Brian Sinwaratna. Let's take it that it is happy smiling faces. If that is the case, then what is the justification for excluding Amnesty International Human Rights Watch and International Crisis Group from the country? You can't have it both ways, you know. The very fact that these internationally human rights organizations, one of them a Nobel Prize winner, still cannot get into Sri Lanka. Whatever uh, Sirisena and Vikram Singh say speaks a lot. Actually, there has been a flurry of reports issued on the 22nd of January, I don't know what on earth, uh, in Trump, between 22nd January uh, 2016 and 25th, there must have been, what, five reports by uh, uh, Mr. Sen, the president, and uh, Rani Rikwa Singh, the prime minister, which are very worrying and which are in violation of all the promises the government, in particular Mr. Sen, made to the uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights, who I think is arriving in Sri Lanka today. As you know, there was a call for uh, international investigation with uh, foreign uh, judges and lawyers. And Sirisena uh, said, there is no way uh, this is going to happen. On the 22nd of January, he was launching a new privilege card for Sri Lankan soldiers. And he said, we will never have an investigation to look into so-called allegations against war heroes or members of the intelligence service. Uh, in that case, he is violating the commitment that he made, he supported, or his government supported, in Geneva. He said that he was the defense minister. But he didn't say, uh, yes, acting defense minister in the closing stages of the war. And I quote, according to the responsibility I had as a reasonable minister before January 8, 2015, and with the responsibility I have today, I will take the country towards the development by strengthening national security. In other words, the army is going to be increased, as it already has been, it was 175,000 strong at the end of the war. That's gone up to 200,000 and up to 300,000. And I now gather the call is for 400,000. My question is, who is the enemy? To continue quoting uh, the president, whatever abuses, insults, and allegations are directed at me, I am dedicated to make a similar commitment like the valiant war heroes who made sacrifices to bring about an everlasting peace in the country. Mr. Sirisena is really another name for Mahindra Rajapaksa. He's not a thug, he's not a crook, but in every other way, he is just, well, as one would expect, because he was the general secretary of Rajapaksa's party, and even more so, the a senior minister, the Minister of Health, in the Rajapaksa government for all the years that it, it, uh, Rajapaksa had been in power, which is November 2005. If he found that Rajapaksa was acting in an inappropriate manner, which he said when he came forward as president, 
what was he doing all these years? Mr. Vikramasinghe, the head of the UNP, uh, who has been trying to become president for a long time, and been unable to do so except uh, for a very short period of time, uh, and that too not as president, as prime minister. His comments are even more boring. And I quote, again on the 25th of January this year, we will always act in accordance with the sovereignty of our country and the constitution. We definitely do not need outsiders. We have an unbiased, independent judiciary in this country, and that is that. The outlook for the country, I'm afraid, according to Brian Senratna, of course, the Sri Lankan government will dismiss that and say he's just a Tamil tiger uh, with a single skin or something like that. It's not good. The economy is in a mess, and that actually is getting worse. They've just applied for, and I gather, got yet another loan of four billion U.S. dollars. They applied for it earlier, and the IMF rejected it. But now I gather, with a touch of uh, arm twisting, possibly by the U.S., IMF have granted $4 billion to increase the debt trap. Last year, today it is even worse. The debt service payment of Sri Lanka is greater than its annual income. And here is this man asking for even more money to increase that debt trap. I'm afraid... I may be in the minority, but I'm basing my statements on published facts and statements made not by me, but by President Sirisena and by Prime Minister Vikramasinghe. Mr. Sirisena is, is also going down the track of appointing family members. I think he appointed his brother as the head of Telecom, Sri Lankan Telecom, and several other members of his family to appointments which he says are insignificant. That is according to him. But the fact that Sirisena is bringing in his family, as Rajapaksa did big time, is going down that path. The situation really is really quite worrying. I'm uh, looking forward to what Prince Zaid, the UN Human Rights High Commissioner, uh, is going to have to say after he leaves Sri Lanka, that is if he says anything at all. But the problem with Zaid is that he is a diplomat, unlike Namanizam Pillay, uh, his predecessor. Zaid is a diplomat, has always been one. Whether he will use diplomatic language to water down what is going on, I don't know. I hope he doesn't. And of course, what I call the yellow-robed hoodlums uh, with partly clean-shaven heads, the politically active Buddhist monks, are... Uh, in full flood, there was a missing cartoonist, Pratip Akhneligwada. He went missing after uh, making uh, uh, some adverse comments about the Rajapaksa regime. The case has not come up for hearing all these, I think, three years. It finally came up for hearing in a district court some distance from Colombo. In the list of accused, and people in custody, mind you, were two army officers. The extremist Buddhist monks arrived in court in large numbers, and the general secretary, a Buddhist monk, jumped into the middle of the court and started abusing the magistrates, mind you. 
And the magistrate turned and said, if you were a civilian, I would have had you locked up. Uh, well, the fact that he has yellow robes should not make a difference. If he has insulted the court, he should be locked up. Uh, I later gathered that he has relented or he has, must have uh, had a barrage uh, of uh, comments from outside, particularly Asian Human Rights Committee, because I gathered that uh, the monk has now been arrested. Well, I'm sure that he will get off, there's no question about that. But these yellow-robed hoodlums, and my mother was a Buddhist, uh, and I'm, I'm therefore technically half a Buddhist. I know these people very well. It was a Buddhist monk, I might remind your audience, who assassinated my uncle, Establiwadi uh, Bandarnaka, prime minister, in the first political assassination in 1958. And they have been the curse in Sri Lanka, and their power is getting actually even more now under Sri Sena than it ever was with Rajpaksa. Can you talk about the International Truth and Justice Project Sri Lanka and the report that they've recently published? Uh, no, I have not read the report in full, but you see, where truth and justice is concerned, they are trying to rope in South Africa. The situation in South Africa is entirely different. There was a Mandela which Sri Lanka has not had and never will. And uh, Desmond Tutu, and I was in South Africa uh, not too long ago. The point I want to make is that the situation in South Africa, the Truth and Justice Commission there, and the situation in Sri Lanka is entirely different. And trying to rope in the, and say that, oh, we are, we, what we are doing is what uh, was done in South Africa is arrant nonsense. What uh, Rajapaksa and Sri Sena are unable to do, and that is to quieten Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and International Crisis Group. That is their big problem. And of course, they can't quieten people like myself, and even more so, the expatriate Tamil community. I'm not a Tamil, I'm a Sinhalese, but it is those of us who are outside the country whom they can't quieten with their threats. The people in Sri Lanka, they can, even in terms of asking for a separate state. You can't ask for a separate state in Sri Lanka because it violates the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution and you can find yourself in jail. And even Bishop Rahapu Joseph, the Bishop of Mena, very carefully avoided any discussion on a separate state for the Tamils because he would have been jailed full stop uh, violation of the Constitution. You see, one of the problems in Sri Lanka is that the, where the Tamils are concerned, they have not had a leader. They've had a leader in Mr. Chevanagam, who died, I think, in 1976 or something. Since then, there has been a vacuum. There is one man now appearing, a justice of the Supreme Court, a former justice of the Supreme Court, Mr. Vigneswaran, uh, who is the head of the Northern Provincial Council. He had no political experience, but at least he is an honest, an able and competent man, and of course highly intelligent. He is coming forward as a leader. And what does the Tamil National Alliance, political party of the Tamils, want done? They want Mr. Vigneswaran expelled from his current post. That is a problem with, uh, with the Tamils. You see, they don't have a leader. And when a leader comes forward, they get rid of him. Or, you know, they allow people to uh, do so. What's the role for international lawyers? International lawyers are out. End of story. Uh, let me quote Mr. Vikramasinghe. 
this is on the 29th of January. We will never accept an international war crimes tribunal. I never approved the Rome Statute, and therefore the International Criminal Court is out. Because if you are not, if you haven't signed the Rome Statute, the International Criminal Court has no jurisdiction. Go on quoting him. Our Constitution has specified how the members of the Supreme Court are appointed. Judges have to be Sri Lankan. If foreigners come to appear, they will first have to obtain the permission of the Supreme Court. And of course, the Supreme Court are too frightened. Uh, certainly, Chief Justice, who is a Tamil, uh, appointed by Sixena, seems to be worse than the crook who was holding this position earlier. If the courts permit them, we cannot do anything about it, says Mr. Vikrasinger. Giving them permission is not our task. He went on, we will never betray the armed forces. So what's the difference between Rajapaksa and Sinsena? Nothing really. Actually, the situation is now worse because they appear to be more reasonable, and they are not. Particularly Mr. Vikrasinger, whom I think is a very dangerous character. And this is a situation in Sri Lanka that the Australian government is sending Tamils back to? Absolutely. I think uh, the High Court decision of sending people who were raped, including children and babies, to Nauru is outrageous. And I think that as an Australian of 38 years standing, I am ashamed, and I say this very loud and clear, I'm ashamed of the High Court of this country, which I had the highest regard for. Six of the seven judges, mind you, it wasn't just by one, confirmed that the Australian government could legally send it. <laughs> maybe legally able to send it. I, but the question is whether it is uh, morally they're able to send it. But they can't judge on morals. They can only go on the legal system. Uh, I suppose so. It is for us to uh, jump up and down on the moral issue. For the first time, I'm proud to call myself a Christian because the Christian church has said, we will offer them refuge. And we all have to jump up and down, not just the church. That's Dr. Brian Sinwaratna speaking to me over the weekend from Brisbane. Five years ago, the South Korea Navy began construction of a billion-dollar base in Gwangjing, a village on the southern coast of South Korea's southernmost major island. It has divided the village of thousands of fishers and farmers and is seen as an outpost for the US Navy to project its power against China. Older islanders have harrowing memories of war. Shortly before and during the 1950-1953 Korean War, government troops cracked down on people they suspected of being leftists who might sympathise with North Korea, devastated Jeju, burning villages and killing about 30,000 people, or one-tenth of the population. In 2005, the government designated Jeju as a peace island. Buddy Bell, co-coordinator of the peace group Voices for Creative Nonviolence, went to Jeju late last year and also in April last year. I asked him first to describe the area where the naval base is being constructed. Jeju Island is an island off the south coast of the mainland of Korea. It is sort of a tourist area. So there are actually a lot of tourists 
walking around, biking around, and the village where the naval base is being built is quite small. I don't know exactly the number of people who live there, but it isn't a large city by any means, and yet the main gate of the base is on the main highway that circles the island. And so the protest that happens there daily is visible to tourists who are walking and biking. It's, it's kind of a regular pastime for tourists to walk and bike around the whole island. There is also, if you're looking at the ocean side of the base, there used to be a very significant geological feature called Gurumbi Rock, which was paved over with cement in order to make this new naval base. Uh, and as well, there's several islands, uh, outcroppings out towards the horizon. There's many people, uh, especially women, who dive for sea animals. And uh, this has been a tradition that they have women divers who dive for food for their families. And this was especially common after the Korean War when there wasn't as many men on the island. It's called the Island of Peace. How did it get that name? I believe that that was a designation given by one of the governors. I'm not totally sure on that, but it is a more recent name. And it is a World Heritage Site? Yes, UNESCO has designated Jeju Island as a heritage site which has several um, coral ecosystems that are protected under UNESCO. But um, I'm not sure what the legal parameters of that designation are and whether they can enforce any kind of protection measure. And the island has a very dark history? It does. There is something referred to as the April 3rd Massacre, um, which happened in 1947. This was after World War II, after the Japanese were out of the picture in South Korea, and before the Korean War really started heating up, there was going to be um, elections. The U.S. was pushing for elections only in the areas that it controlled, which was the south part of the peninsula. And uh, other powers in um, China and North Korea they were wanting to have an election over the whole peninsula, um, which was believed to have a probability of ending up with a communist government. So people that were not in favor of allowing the same people who had been controlling their lives on Jeju Island, the Japanese soldiers and the people who cooperated with the Japanese, these were the same people that the U.S. forces were relying on to keep order on Jeju Island. There was several protests that kept gaining in the amount of participation um, until there was this incident on April 3rd where police fired into the crowd of demonstrators. A lot of events transpired which leading from that first event when the police fired on demonstrators. The U.S. and South Korean, which would become South Korea, which was then not South Korea yet, they decided that they would push for the removal of any uh, opposition on the island, which they deemed to be uh, communist-inspired. And so there was a couple of years when 
people were rounded up. They were induced to tell who their friends were, uh, who they had been organizing with. More and more people got deemed communist or communist-inspired, and they were executed in various ways. They were shot in front of their graves. They were shot on the edge of waterfalls uh, where they fell to their death. It's been a while since I looked at the numbers, but this is an incident that is remembered among the people of Jeju Island, although they haven't been able to talk about it all the way from 1947 until sometime in the 1990s when the government decided to withdraw its policy of um, silence on the 1947 event. And now, actually, Jeju Island has a museum dedicated to the April 3rd massacre and the events that transpired after that. So um, there is a little bit more recognition of the crimes that occurred at that time. And even last year, on April 3rd, uh, it was the first time that South Korean President Park sun hee went to Jeju Island for a commemoration event where the event was commemorated and she offered an apology for what the South had done during that time. Why then, 60, 70 years later, is a big naval base being built there? Yes, the base that's going in is actually, from what I understand, built to accommodate ships that the South Korean government doesn't own. And the implication is that this base is really for U.S. ships, including um, ships that would carry a nuclear weapon. And I don't particularly have the research done myself on this, but this is what I've been told uh, from the demonstrators on Jeju Island. The implications now are that if the U.S. has the capability to put a nuclear weapon in the waters of South Korea, this would be seen by the North Koreans as an instigation. We've been hearing the news lately about North Korea um, testing a weapon, but the fact remains that South Korea is not a nuclear state, and we already have a situation where North Korea and the U.S. are already on pins and needles with each other. There needs to be a way to draw down the tension between the two, and to put a nuclear weapon in South Korea would instead ratchet that up. Tell us about your time there and the way the people are showing their distrust of this development. I was there in April of last year and again in November of last year, 2015. It's very welcoming atmosphere there in the village. So many of the village people are against the base, although there are a few who support the base and the uh, economic promises that is made that uh, it will improve the economic situation. But most people do not believe that is true who live in the town and who I've talked to. Every day uh, there is a ceremony where people go out in the morning and bow 100 times. It's a Buddhist ceremony 
in which they are praying for the end of construction, the closure of the base, that peaceful relations between major countries will come about. And then at about 11 a.m., there is always a Catholic Mass that occurs, and there is a tent across the street from the gate, the main gate, where the Mass occurs with a priest and communion. And then many of the people who live in town and attend this Mass daily um, are seated across the street on the driveway of the naval base on Jeju Island. So they are essentially blocking any traffic to go in or out of the base. And about every 15 minutes during this Catholic Mass, I would say probably 25 or 30 police officers come out. They ask people to move. If they don't move, they pick the demonstrators up by their chair. There would be four police officers who each leg of the chair and actually cart people to the side and then um, create a police line where they hold all of the demonstrators aside while many vehicles go inside and out of the base. And this happens over and over again. Uh, as soon as the vehicles are gone, the police leave and then the demonstrators come back and take their chairs back to where they were before. And the mass continues through all this. It's one of the kind of surreal things about being there on Jeju. After the mass is completed, there is a line People stand up and join hands, and they sort of snake around all around the driveway of the space so that as cars are going by, trucks are trying to get in and out, the demonstrators are weaving back and forth between the vehicles, and police are kind of just blowing their whistles constantly and trying to pull people apart or move them aside. Occasionally... There are accidents. I think not long after I left, one woman was run over by a car. Not her body, but her toes were run over. And uh, she was in the hospital for a long time, and now she's in a cast. Um, But the police do not assume liability for that. They don't consider themselves responsible at all, and they blamed her for that. How long has this been going on for? This protest has been going on for, I think, at least four years. Uh, I had not heard of it till a couple of years ago, but it has been happening for a bit longer than that. After the line um, where people are weaving in and out of the traffic in the driveway, then there is a, a series of choreographed dances that are done. Then at the end of that, people break for lunch. This happens every day. It doesn't happen all day, but it happens again and again each day. And like I said, it's been several years. There are other actions like the activists go out in kayaks, especially when they see a a ship coming in or there's news that a ship will come in. They will try to go out with their kayak and try to block the ship from coming in to the base. And they're normally arrested right away. This was common when the base was first being built and Gurumbi Rock was still visible. People would go out in kayaks and actually camp out, have an encampment on the rock, 
when Gurumbi Rock was finally actually cemented over, that was a, a huge blow to people's emotional morale. But they keep fighting, they keep uh, resisting in order that more environmental destruction doesn't occur. Some of the environmental destruction that they are protesting against includes the fact that they want to protect the, the soft coral habitat that exists on the south coast of Jeju Island. And also, this is a vital feeding area for pink dolphins, which are very rare, but they do live in Jeju Island, as well as some other Japanese islands. And so this is also a part of the reason that people demonstrate, because they see the base as going in the wrong direction in terms of international relations and pushing for peaceful negotiations between world powers. And also they see it as degradation of the ecosystem around them. And that's Buddy Bell, who's the co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence based in Chicago. And on the program next week, we'll hear about his time on the island of Okinawa. The Jeju Island is situated off the southern coast of South Korea. Next on Tuesday Home Time, I'm joined by historian and author Brian McKinlay. And Brian, the topic today is Libya and beginning with a proposal in the recent weeks that the United Kingdom and Italy might be sending ground troops into Libya. Yes, Jen, this this is just one more chapter in a long chapter of imperialist intervention in the affairs of the Libyan people, going back more than a century. I'm not talking about current events, really. But also one wonders how mad this intervention would be because the Libyans have a long history of resistance to foreign intervention in their affairs, and that has been incessant over the last century. To give you an idea of this, and I, I think uh, Australians know little about Libya, although oddly enough, it's a country in North Africa where no other country in North Africa, and there are five major Arab states, Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria and Morocco, making up that North African bloc. Uh, Australia's always had, in modern times, a link with Libya because of the Australian part in the liberation of Libya in 1940 and 41 from Italian fascism. Many Australians died in famous battlefields like Tobruk and Bardia and Derna and Benghazi. Uh, in fact, I've been to Libya a couple of times in the now fairly distant past, but one of the things I did see in one place and visit was a, an Australian war grave, uh, a series of graves run by the Wargraves Commission, and uh, they were very well kept and uh, well looked after in terms of the cemetery itself. Uh, so there's this long Australian link with Libya. And oddly enough, if you look at the street directory of Melbourne or Sydney, you'll find that there are streets named after places like Bardia, and I noticed a couple of Benghazis in Queensland the other day when I put up on the web looking up Benghazi Street, and they came up one in Cairns. Because in the 1940s, the Australian battles there and post-war were of interest and people named some streets after those places. Just as in Melbourne, we've got streets down around um, Elstonwick and Windsor named after battlefields in the Crimea War a century ago. 
So, we have that link with Libya, but it's generally forgotten, and few Australians know much about Libyan history. Libya is a very ancient country. It's mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, there was a great Greek city in the mountains north of Benghazi, beautiful place, called Cyrene. Most of Libya is desert, but around Tripoli and around Benghazi and north of Benghazi, there are quite fertile areas. And north of Benghazi, there's a big area of mountains called the Green Mountains. Jebel Akhtar, they call in Arabic. And the Green Mountains are a bit like the Blue Mountains, if I could find a, an analogy, because they're rugged escarpments and uh, very inaccessible valleys and forested areas. And even in, and, and believe it or not, in a very cold European winter, the odd snowstorm blows down from Greece on the other side of the Mediterranean and uh, carpets the Jebelacta Mountains with a light fall of snow. That's a miracle to the Libyans who live in an otherwise hot desert country. Though this occurs, of course, in Algeria and Morocco too. You forget that much of North Africa, not much of Libya, but much of North Africa is mountainous. Libya is an ancient place. I said it's mentioned in the New Testament. It's said that a man called Simon of Cyrene helped carry Christ's cross on the day of the crucifixion and it was a very early Christian community. Libya was mentioned by the Romans, who once said, oh, new things come from Libya, because uh, from Libya in ancient times, and right down to modern times, camel caravans set off across the Sahara, taking months and months in the winter, when the weather was a bit milder, to cross to sub-Saharan Africa, and they brought back three things the Romans enumerated. They said Libya provided spices, gold and slaves. And slaves and slavery was a major industry and in cities on the coast. Libya has three major ports, Benghazi, Tripoli and uh, Tobruk. And these coastal ports were used even by the Romans. And the slaves were sent across to Rome uh, and some were used in the Colosseum, some were used in the household slavery, some were used for other purposes, as workers and whatever. These were mostly black Africans, of course. So Libya is, is, has a place in Greco-Roman history, uh, and then later on part of Byzantium history, when Constantinople became, in the Middle Ages, as the centre of a great empire around the Mediterranean, and then after the 1400s, when... A Turkish army, a Muslim Turkish army, conquered, uh, captured Constantinople. The empire passed very quickly into the hands of the Turks. And the Turks conquered, well, they didn't have to conquer, really. They took over the running of North Africa, not effectively. I mean, Libya had little to offer. Apart from those things like slaves, uh, much of it was of no use to the Turks. But the Turks ruled from the 1400s to, 19, uh, to the year 1911. They had about four and a half centuries of Turkish rule. The one great symbol of this in Tripoli is an immense fort that the Turks built and which in modern times under the Gaddafi regime was turned into a remarkable museum. One of the great museums of the world, I believe about $4 billion was spent by the Gaddafi regime. Gaddafi had a taste for great projects, by the way, and this was one of them, and it survived all the troubles, though I believe at the moment, of course, it's closed. But 
because Libya has become a failed state. There are rival governments in Tripoli, Tobruk and Benghazi, three cities all held by rival different groups. A, a city called Sirte, halfway between Benghazi and Tripoli, has been for a year or two in the hands of the maddest of the mad fundamentalist IS group who have been crucifying and beheading their opponents in the town. And Sirte was quite a modern as all the Libyan cities were, quite a modern, well-constructed city. It was Gaddafi's hometown, by the way, and he put a lot of money. A university was built, a big conference centre, an airport. But today it's now controlled by a fundamentalist group. And Gaddafi was a great critic of the fundamentalists. After 9-11, he was particularly critical of them. Blair went out and spoke to him and... Um, at the same time, Gaddafi announced the abandonment of his nuclear project. He couldn't have been more conciliatory in the last years of his rule. But anyway, Sirte now is controlled by the, um, the maddest of the fundamentalists. And this is what the British are talking of doing, because it's come a real base for their operations. Uh, and, of course, the other thing is the collapse of the government in Libya. And it's without a proper government a failed state like Somalia, its ports are the departure place for tens of thousands, and you see them on the news. If you watch SBS, it's often showing boatloads, huge numbers of people crossing to Malta and Sicily. And I think the Italians last year had something like 150,000 boat people cross from Libya. Now, in a curious way, all this can be seen as a well-deserved punishment on those Western states that helped to overthrow Gaddafi, because Gaddafi, if nothing else, would have been an ally against these fundamentalist groups that are appearing everywhere. And Libya was a pretty modern state. In Gaddafi's time, women were in the government. He went there and found women were not always covered up. Many women, young women, just wore a scarf. Gaddafi was not um, a fundamentalist in his views on women either. Uh, he famously had a female bodyguard, a group of women, young women, who uh, accompanied him everywhere. So the disaster that's engulfed Libya affects the whole Mediterranean. I want to go back and look at particularly the role of the Italians. In 1911, Italy got involved in the Balkan War against Turkey. A number of other countries did. Greece uh, was one. And the Italians invaded Libya, which was easy to do. It was poorly defended. Um, although that didn't stop the Italian Navy bombarding Benghazi and Tripoli and causing a terrible massacre of innocent civilians. But eventually the Italians occupied Libya. Now, the Libyans, for a moment, had hoped that with the Turks gone, they might get their independence. Well, that was a fain hope. Between 1911 and, of course, intervening in that period was the First World War, the Italians didn't do much in Libya. They just occupied the ports and left the rest of the country pretty much to itself. But in the early 1920s, Mussolini came to power in Italy, and Mussolini, along with all his other fascist ideas, had these grandiose idea of what he called a new Roman Empire, of which he was going to be the emperor, of course. And this involved Italy occupying Libya and the Rhodes and the Dodecanese Islands, which had once belonged to Greece, but Italy had stolen them from the Turks. 
uh, and in Rhodes, if you've been to Rhodes, uh, Mussolini rebuilt many Roman buildings, reconstructed them. He did that in Libya too. Wonderful Roman ruined city near Tripoli called Leptis Magna has a fine museum. I mean, oddly enough, some of the things that Mussolini did, or his archaeologists did, were quite worthy. Uh, but that's no defence of him. From 1920 onwards, the Italians also began to bring in Italian immigrants to Libya and drive the Libyans off what little fertile land there was. And this led to a rebellion led by a remarkable man called Omar Mukhtar, which the Libyans called the Lion of the Desert. And uh, back in the 1970s, about 79, a film was made, a very good film. If you find it in a shop or somewhere, have a look at it. Uh, Omar Mukhtar, Lion of the Desert. By the way, the cast was a quite a good one. Uh, Anthony Quinn, who later played Zorba the Greek, and Irene Pappas, who was his wife in the same film, uh, is a, a woman in the story, and, uh, and a, a British actor called Oliver Reed, who made a lot of films in the 70s. Uh, I, by chance, was in Bardia in Libya, in a hotel having lunch, when they all arrived in from some filming. The film is worth having a look at. Now, Omar Mukhtar became the great Libyan hero and is still seen as the sort of George Washington of Libya. Uh, he was a teacher. He wasn't a military man at all. But in the 1920s, he and others began to think of organising an anti-colonial revolt against the Italians. And this extended right through the 1920s into the 30s. And they won remarkable victories over Mussolini's fascist armies. They moved into the mountains of the Jebel Akhtar, which I've mentioned, north of Benghazi. And there, in these remote, rugged mountains, they waged a fairly modern guerrilla warfare, which would have done credit to the Viet Cong or someone. But it was all made up as they went along, as far as the Libyans were concerned. And they had little help, well, no help from anyone, though weapons did come in from sympathy groups in Egypt, which it has a common border with, of course, and, and the fighting spread, but the Italians responded with a, a General Graziani, one of Mussolini's prominent fascist leaders, with the most ferocious persecution of the people. They expelled 100,000 people from the, the Green Mountains and put them in concentration camps near Benghazi of which about 40,000 died because of lack of proper food and medical care. This was one way of emptying the Green Mountains of people who would support. A tactic, by the way, that the Americans try to use in Vietnam. It's an old colonial tactic, but it didn't succeed for a while, and eventually the Italians had to put a tremendous effort into suppressing Omar Mukhtar and his supporters. It was a very brave and remarkable struggle. But in 1932, he was captured in, after a battle and um, the Italians executed him. They hanged him in Benghazi and forced most of the population to witness his execution in a square in the centre of the town and then left his body hanging there for days in a grim, terrible event which shocked the Libyans. And, uh, but nevertheless, by then, the Italians had pretty much crushed the rebellion, went on establishing their fascist rule till 1940 when Italy entered the war after the fall of France on Hitler's side. 
One of the generals, a man called Balbo, wasn't too keen on this. He thought Italy would be in dire trouble if the Germans didn't win the war, and he was absolutely right. And in the end, it cost Mussolini his life. Balbo died in an air accident, which many people, at Tobruk, by the way, which many people thought was not an accident, but deliberate. The people in the government of Mussolini wanted to shut him up and get rid of him. Then, of course, World War II spread across Libya, and here the Australians had a key role. Australian troops in Egypt uh, went to the defence of Egypt, in fact, but found Mussolini's army hopeless, and uh, it fell back very quickly, and the Australians liberated Tobruk and Benghazi, the Jebelakta mountain cities like Bardia, and... Um, then, of course, the Germans came to help Mussolini. They hadn't been involved to this time. And a famous German general, Rommel, led the um, German armies almost to capture Cairo. But then the Allies drove back the uh, Germans and the Italians. And at home in Italy, Mussolini's regime collapsed. And uh, virtually civil war broke out in Italy in 1943. And the Allies had invaded Morocco and North African countries. And so the pressure on Italy was very great. And the fascist regime collapsed altogether. Now, Libya was liberated in 42-43 and became effectively a British colony after the war. And it had little value then, of course, in the 1950s, late 50s, huge deposits of oil were found, and that changed the game. But in 69, oh, and the British put a tribal leader called Idris, Idris Sanusi, as king of Libya. And if they'd had their way, the British would have turned Libya into something like one of the Gulf states. Oil rich, run by a wealthy elite, but it didn't work, and in 69, a group of military officers, including Gaddafi, seized power and uh, expelled the British and the Americans, who had an airbase there, uh, nationalised the oil wells, and Libya had begun to embark on a completely new course. Uh, and that lasted for over 40 years, till Gaddafi's overthrow at five or six years ago. The whole history of Libya then, in the last century, has been of wars, revolution, uh, foreign occupation and conflict. Uh, it was estimated that almost half the Libyan population died in the Second World War, just of things like starvation, let alone war itself. And uh, the population of Libya was less than a million in 1945 when the war ended. Gaddafi, by the way, had a program to uh, increase the population. And families were given fairly substantial annual bonuses from the proceeds, something like five or $6,000 to begin with, quite a lot of money in the 60s and 70s, to families and special bonuses for each child. He set up a national health scheme too, uh, and eventually there were government-controlled hospitals set up, all services free. And indeed, lacking a lot of specialist attention, the Libyan government would fly people to European hospitals with the, the local airline, Libyan airline, uh, fly people with special conditions to hospitals in France or Britain or wherever. So Libyans had a remarkable health coverage, and Gaddafi was much taken with great projects. One of them was the creation of what was called the Great Water Scheme. 
looking for oil in the deserts of the Sahara, where all the oil fields are, they found, even better than oil, they found water. Because Libya doesn't have a single river. And the only rainfall they get in winter is the only supply of water. Shortages of water are part of Libyan history, but not now. This great scheme of pipelines brought abundant water from an artesian source, a bit like central Australia, really, to Tripoli and Benghazi and Tobruk and other cities. And uh, Libya had overcome that problem. His last great project was the plan to build a great railway linking Tunisia across Libya into Egypt. And there would be then a railway system from Cairo to Casablanca on the Atlantic coast of Morocco. This was well underway when the rebellion against Gaddafi, supported from the West, took place in 2012. And um, the, the railway was being built by Chinese and Russian railway engineers. And uh, in fact, the station, a big railway station, had been constructed in Tripoli and the first trains had been brought over to see how it worked. But now, to my knowledge, the scheme has been totally abandoned and until there is a single government in Libya with the money and the resources to, to do something about it, the vast expenditure on the railways lies there in the hot Libyan sun with uh, uncompleted. It's a, it's a terrible tragedy. And it was one of, another one of Gaddafi's passionate projects of which he was very fond. Now, all this says something about what the Libyans have suffered from in the last century, since 1911, when the Italians occupied it. And I remember saying to an elderly Libyan uh, in a conversation, he'd, he'd lived through the war, this was some years ago now, and he said to me, I said to him, well, the Libyans were the first victims of Italian fascism, weren't they? He said, no, they were the second victims. I said, who do you mean? He said, the first victims were the Italian people. So there is no hostility, or there wasn't then, in Libya to the Italians as such. Some had remained on after the war, by the way, but eventually they all left, and many of them were expelled. And uh, I don't think there's any Italian population now in Libya. A few remnants, a beautiful Catholic cathedral, now a mosque in Benghazi. And... Uh, here and there, interesting little bits and pieces in the cities of sort of 1920s, 30s Art Deco architecture. Mussolini was very fond of Art Deco, and a lot of modern buildings built in that time in Italy were made in that style. Uh, but little else remains uh, of the Italian colonial period. But now the thought of Western intervention on the ground in Libya is pretty remarkable. I mean, the West, especially the French, involved themselves in the air war that helped bring down Gaddafi. But um, the prospect of a new conflict shows how hopeless and desolate and stupid the Western policies have been in the Middle East, in which a functioning modern state like Libya has been reduced to a, a failed state like Somalia, right on the door of Italy itself. So there's a terrible irony in this. By the way, um, next door to Libya, well, it has two neighbours, Egypt on one side on the east and Tunisia on the west on the left-hand side, as it were. Tunisia has been one of the few countries that have managed the successful transformation from a dictatorship in what was called the Arab Spring 
to becoming a functioning modern democratic state. And Tunisia's done pretty well, but the events in Libya have had a very bad effect. And some of these fundamentalist groups from Libya have infiltrated and caused, uh, in a couple of cases, massacres in Tunisia. Last year there was a terrible massacre at the Great Museum in Tunis where foreign tourists off a cruise ship, I think about 40 of them, were murdered uh, visiting the museum. A group, uh, a terrorist group, came into the museum and actually shot them inside the museum. And Tunisia now is constructing a kind of fence between itself and Libya. There's been no proper border up till this time. If you, as I did on one occasion, travel by bus from Libya into Tunisia and and up to Tunis. Tunisia's got a good railway system, by the way, built by the French. But um, in those days, there was a normal sort of border crossing, but there was no barrier or wall or anything between the two countries. But now uh, the Tunisians are having to do that because the threat to Tunis and to Tunisia itself is pretty severe from these fundamentalist groups. Gaddafi, of course, was always a critic of them. He called them heretics. He said the ideas they preach are not part of Islam, and he himself was pretty mild in his religious attitudes. But nowadays, this is really threatening the survival of Tunisia itself. So the whole problem of Libya is poisoning the entire southern Mediterranean region. And thanks to historian and author Brian McKinlay. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do. And everything can change. What John Pilger labels as the epic miscarriage of justice of our time appears to be unravelling. Following the finding of the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention that adjudicates and decides whether governments comply with their human rights obligations, ruling that Julian Assange has been detained unlawfully by Britain and Sweden. I spoke yesterday with Kieran O'Reilly, anti-war activist and a long-time supporter of Julian. Kieran, can you first explain who the UN Working Group is and the process they follow to reach a conclusion on a case? It sounds like there are five judges involved in this working group and one is Australian, so she absented herself from the process. The other four came down with a three-to-one decision in favour of Julian Assange's petition. I think the one who opposed it was from the Ukraine. I think Julian initiated this view and 
have come down with the decision that says that Britain and Sweden have arbitrarily detained him now for five and a half years. Originally, he was in jail in Wandsworth for a couple of weeks and they put him in solitary confinement there. And then he was released on bail with an electronic tag and pretty much under house arrest. He had to sign on at a police station in the middle of the day on the countryside there. And now for the last three and a half years, he's been in the Ecuadorian embassy without any access to sunlight or, you know, hospitals and stuff like that. So decision was given to both the British and Swedish governments two weeks ago. So they're given two weeks to appeal it and neither of them uh, have bothered. And now it's been announced formally last Friday and, and the decision's been denounced by both Britain and Sweden. What does it mean for these two countries if they go against that ruling? Well, you know, they've signed international agreements that the UN is now saying they're in contravention of by denying natural justice and that, that they've now detained a dissident for five and a half years without charge. And I think implied in that is that the Swedish prosecutor has not, you know, expedited the process that whatever reason has just been happy with the state of affairs to continue and um, that's interesting I think it's a, and it's a major criticism on, on how this has been how this process has unfolded. Can you talk a bit more about the role of Sweden right from the word go? Julian went to Sweden I think about the time the FBI turned up in Britain the, the family of Bradley Manning now Chelsea Manning in Wales I think Julian was giving a number of talks in Sweden and obviously these you know, interactions happened, uh, consensual sex with two people in a few days. And um, then well, the second person, second woman, was keen to get uh, have a HIV test, uh, Julian take a HIV test. So the first woman accompanied her to a police station <clears throat> where she knew the police woman from the same political party. And this very dodgy record of, well, there's no record of interview that wasn't taped or videotaped. It's a uh, police interview occurred and the second woman was so disturbed by it, she walked out of the interview feeling that there was another agenda besides the request to have a HIV test underway and um, refused to sign the statement that she was making. So initially, the, uh, Julian was then interviewed at the Swedish police, police station and the chief prosecutor in Stockholm ruled there was no case, there was no absence of consent, there was no assault or rape or whatever, and he was allowed to leave the country, so he went to Britain. Now another prosecutor in another town, Gothenburg, managed to revive the case. An extradition warrant was issued, and at that stage, I think something like 23 countries in the EEC and five of them, including Sweden, a warrant can be, an extradition warrant can be issued merely by a police officer. In every other country, including Britain, you require a magistrate or a judge to issue such a warrant. So the appeal in Britain was around that issue. And since then, the legislation has changed in Britain and now Britain doesn't accept warrants issued merely by a police officer. So in all this time, from the get-go, uh, Julian's position was one, you can come and interview me in London, the Swedish embassy or, you know, wherever you want, want to do that. And also the position has been that he was willing to return to Sweden if they would guarantee there'd be no further extradition to the United States, where a grand jury has been active for the last 
five years around the WikiLeaks uh, issues. And, you know, given what's happened to Chelsea Manning, 35 years in prison, that's been Julian's main concern. And the Swedes seem to be quite happy just to, <laughs> to drag it out and, um, and to, to have him in effect under house arrest in London. Now, due to the statute of limitations, three of the lines of investigation are now lapsed and there's one outstanding potential investigation. Yeah, it's just it's, it's been five and a half years without charge, and the UN Working Group have concluded reasonably enough that this is not due process and it's not natural justice. In the meantime, of course, Ecuador offered him asylum, and like I, I myself lived with a number of East Timorese in England who occupied embassies in Jakarta in the 1990s, and eventually the Indonesian government concluded that, that they could be given safe passage to the airport and they flew on to Portugal, where the British won't do that in this case. They won't allow Julian to safely travel to the airport and go to Ecuador. Do the supporters of Julian believe that both the Swedish authorities and the British authorities have been leaned on? Yeah, that they're basically serving the interests of the United States and this has made very clear how powerful the United States remains as, the, as an empire. Uh, when Edward Snowden was being pursued. And, you know, the reality is that Edward Snowden would be in custody today if it wasn't for WikiLeaks, specifically Julian Assange and Sarah Harrison, getting him out of Hong Kong to Russia. And then at one point, the Bolivian president was in Russia on some trade discussions. His plane was coming back from Moscow to South America and the, the Americans became convinced that Edward Snowden was being smuggled on that plane. So all um, Obama did was pick up the phone and all these Western European countries just kept closing their airspace to this plane that was already in the air, the plane of a president of a, of a country. So that's how much reach they have, you know, that, uh, that these countries like Italy and Spain and France are supposed to be independent countries. Uh, when the Americans say jump, they say how high, who do you want us to land on and how hard you want us to land on them. And this was reflected by the Australian government. The Gillard government wanted to take Assange's passport off from the get-go, <laughs> you know, and I think it was Kevin Rudd who actually stopped Gillard doing that. And uh, there's been very little diplomatic to, uh, during this whole drama. And so it's quite interesting that Julia Bishop is now looking at taking legal advice on the UN's decision. So that's something, that's a new development. I know the grand jury is a secret grand jury, but there is information leaked out about what they are planning to do. Do you know what that is? Yeah, well, it's interesting. The grand jury is cited in Arlington, Virginia, which is where I actually was deported from the United States only five years ago now after disarming a B-52 bomber. So Arlington, Virginia, I think, is the county with the most government employees uh, in the United States. It's where um, the CIA headquarters is and it's just outside of Washington, D.C. there. So that's where the grand jury on WikiLeaks is called. And there's a possibility they're after more than Julian, that they might be after four or five people. And it's interesting to kind of speculate on the hostility of the Guardian newspaper to Julian. Like, it's really beyond belief, the negative campaign the Guardian has waged against Julian for the last five years. And I speculate that's got to do with their own people, that they're fearful that some of their own journalists will be targeted by this grand jury indictment. So um, maybe they're 
they're kind of like um, saying, we'll give you the head of Julian Assange if you leave our journalist alone, you know, so... One of their journalists was targeted. Glenn? Yeah, it's a sealed indictment, so they haven't opened it yet. OK. Um, Who targeted Glenn? Didn't he or his partner end up... Ah, oh, oh, Glenn Greenwald, right. Mm. Yeah, that was uh, yeah, in relation to uh, Edward Snowden. They've actually turned that into a terrorist inquiry because after he was grilled... Um, I think the Brazilian partner of Glenn Greenwald, he launched a civil case at the High Court. So the cops responded to it by turning it into a terrorist case, which has all this very ambiguous powers about it. Like, um, if you're called in, you're neither a suspect or a witness. You kind of inhabit this netherworld. So that's pretty weird. Um, so I think it's interesting that, like, um, you know, what is different? Well, if there's any wiggle room to disappoint, to go against the uh, United States president... It's in the eighth year of his administration. Obama will not be president in 12 months' time. In the meantime, Julia Bishop has received a lot of status out of helping free the Australian journalists in Egypt, also active on the Bali, the lads who are hung in Indonesia. You'd hope that Turnbull was more of a liberal liberal than <laughs> Tony Abbott. Yeah, so unlike the Swedish and British governments, the Australian government hasn't dismissed the UN findings out of hand as yet. And Ecuador? And Ecuador is, yeah, very, very courageous. When you reflect on how sycophantic the Australian government are sending off troops to American wars on request and you look at how weak countries were when Obama picked up the phone and got them to close airspace to the president of Bolivia, you have the courageous Ecuador expressing some kind of independence, you know, and they've offered solidarity for the last three and a half years by granting uh, Julian asylum. You know, after researching the case and seeing it as a case of political persecution. What's been the cost to Julian? It's interesting watching the footage of him out in the balcony because he's, he's only only come out on the balcony three times in three and a half years. So, you know, he's obviously not... There's been times when he's been ill in there, not getting much sunshine and um, can't go to a hospital or anything like that. So in some ways, it's, you know, people saying it's better than prison. Well, it is in terms of people can visit you. But it's also worse than being imprisoned in the sense that you don't have an out date, don't know how this is going to end, you have no access to exercise or sunshine, really. You haven't got, a, you know, the backup of hospitals and dentists and everything else. So I think he's incredibly courageous, you know, and considering all the pressures arraigned against him, like the British spent £12 million circling him for three years, his mental health has been very good, as Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden uh, are as well. They're remarkable really heroes of this generation. They need solidarity and support. And uh, watching some of the Australian media cover the issue with such cynicism, uh, it's pretty outrageous, especially Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange. They're in custody for exposing a war that millions of people march against. And when you march against war, what you do is incite people to expose and resist it. And when those people get called before the courts and locked up, you're responsible to accompany them. So I think we could all lift our game in terms of uh, solidarity with Julian and Chelsea and Snowden. Who has his passport? I believe it'd be the British authorities. I think I uh, probably had it on him when he reported to a police station back in 2010, December 2010. What would you think would happen if he stepped outside the front door of that embassy? Uh, the, Brit the British would arrest him and I think the Americans would put a direct extradition request into them. And, you know, I think the way this has played out with the Swedes, I think, I believe they had no intention of ever prosecuting him in Sweden. 
that uh, if it gone to Sweden, it would have been handed over quite rapidly. Yeah, so even if the, all the Swedish stuff goes, I don't think he'll be coming out of the embassy until there's a guarantee from Britain that he won't be extradited to the United States. And, and Sweden could have made that guarantee, you know, and he would have gone to Sweden. But it's interesting in terms of wiggle room, this is the year, the last year of the US presidency before Donald Trump becomes president. Um, uh, this is the time to have a push, you know. Is there any history of governments going back on a promise? I'm thinking of if they say, no, we won't extradite you to the US and they say that they will, what happens then? Yeah, I don't know. They, there's been other cases of people being in, being in embassies. I think there was a, someone in the American embassy in Budapest for about 15 years. I mean, yeah, governments break promises, all right, but... You know, he's got a pretty good legal team. And that, that was an interesting development, too, that Julia Bishop met with Jeffrey Robertson and Jan Robinson the other day in London. I don't think that's happened before. So there's been responses by the Australian government that are quite new now after five and a half years. In a sense, are you optimistic? Well, I'm naturally a pessimist. <laughs> but, um, you know, I thought that was interesting that, you know, they, they'd met with Julian's legal team and that they're going to study, you know, they're obviously taking the UN decision seriously, unlike the Swedes and the British. I'm not optimistic, but I'm hopeful, I guess, you know. <laughs> it would be a change from their attitude to him in the past to give him some yeah, support. Yeah, and, you know, maybe on the on the back of this Australian journalist uh, who got released in Egypt that would be inconsistent with an approach like that. Thanks, Kieran. No worries. Thank you. Bye now. And that was Kieran O'Reilly, anti-war activist in Brisbane, and I had a little bit of a, a company there from a crow. Australia's treatment of asylum seekers has drawn the attention of nations from every region of the world. Quoting Professor Sarah Joseph, the director of the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law. Today it is manifestly clear that we are not role models on issues of asylum. We are pariahs. Recently at the UN, 110 countries spoke at Australia's session in Geneva, putting forward 300 recommendations for the country to improve its human rights record. But it all falls on deaf ears with government and the opposition. The Immigration Minister Dutton, responding to churches across the country offering to give sanctuary to asylum seekers facing deportation, said even churches were not above the law. And that law says that anyone offering sanctuary to asylum seekers could be risking 10 years jail or a fine of $180,000 or both. To try and make sense of all what is happening in Australia, this morning I spoke with Jack Smith from Narrajun in Western Australia, who's um, coordinator of Project SafeCom. I'm ready to draw a conclusion. There is something absolutely new happening in Australia. We had almost like a full coag-style consensus between the premiers about what they want or do not want. They're now the protesters who are also leaders in the country. Now, of course, they had a push that started last year with hundreds of doctors standing in front of their hospitals with placards condemning the Border Force Act, defying repercussions like two years jail for speaking out about gross abuse 
in our detentions, offshore detention centers, and also saying very loud and very clear right around the country, guess what? We're going to practice civil disobedience because if we cannot guarantee the safety of a child once it leaves our hospital and it needs to go back into detention centers, we will not release them from our hospitals. We will actually shelter children in our hospitals. That was the first protocol last year, and I think that's where the new movement happened. Now the civil society has kind of brought out the stuff again with the let them say after the high court case, and the premiers have come on board. What we're having is the population and its leaders and its experts are on the move, and the only two unmoved parties are the coalition in Canberra, Malcolm Turnbull, sticking to the old scripts, and Bill Shorten sticking to the old scripts. So really, there's a big message going to Canberra. It's run its course, it's dead, we need something else, and we cannot justify torturing children because we're using some nasty, stupid, idiot line of saving lives at sea. We're sick of it. That really is what's happening, and it's being expressed loud and clear right around the country. It's actually a very good thing what's happening. It's just taken so long to get to this stage. I know, I know. But the more we torture, the louder the response will be. Remember in the time of Ruddock, our newest human rights hero, by the way, who goes to Geneva to defend our human rights, which is a disgusting thing in itself. In the Ruddock time, we had small L liberals pussyfooting around in the back room, taking years to come to the conclusion that um, we, they wanted some action about children in detention. You know, we're talking about Judy Moylan, Petra Giorgio, Russell Broadbent, and a couple of others. They started speaking out, but it took them years. But, you know, we have Canberra consensus has dug in its heels stubbornly and stupidly it's become a political shit fight about, you know, our party is better than your party, about controlling the borders. Now it's come to the point where we, you know, are screaming about protecting our borders and saving lives at sea, and we actually, as a result, we're actually inflicting serious and direct and deliberate state-sponsored torture on children and women and men in detention centers. We're destroying the lives of people who seek our safety and help. And it is now so escalated, and no secrecy in detention centers has actually worked. Remember, there is now a fully developed plan of secrecy. It's not working. It's not stopping the people from moving, which is fantastic. We will not no longer be silent right around the country about what the nasty torturers in Canberra dream up next, and it's not working for them. It's not just civil society here in Australia, though. We're being condemned worldwide. Yep, we are. And as Europe finds its struggles with nasty countries, we also are finding out that those nasty countries model themselves on Australia. And the last thing has not been said about Europe and in Europe, because that is still a fomenting brew, still cooking away. It's not being fully developed there, and it will eventually develop. 
and it will not develop in Europe as a continent-wide measure of torture. The balance between compassion and decency and universality of human rights is still to be distilled out of that pretty dirty brew in Europe. But we are now still on our little island trying to maintain that nastiness, and it's not happening. It's not working. It's coming unstuck. So it's all good news in in so many ways. And it's not just abuses of asylum seekers offshore. The abuses are happening on the onshore detention centres as well. Yep. And we need to start addressing our racism. Australia needs to address its racism. Remember, we've had a lovely apology for the stolen children generations. Fine. Great. But we haven't had a national apology for the white Australia policy. That's never been done. That needs to happen. You're going to have to disband the immigration department before you get that, aren't you? Well, we need political leadership that addresses the big issues. Because unless we are nationwide addressing the big issues, racism will continue to fester. And it's affecting Aboriginal people, it's affecting Muslim people, it's affecting non-white Anglo-Australians. You don't want to expand on Radic at all or you don't reckon he's worth it? Look, I rang a couple of journalists yesterday and I said we need some opinion pieces and we need an interview with Radic. What the hell are you going to do in in New York and, and Geneva? We have a special envoy when we are lobbying the UN for a seat for Australia on the Human Rights Council or the Security Council or, in this case, some nebulous report, unconfirmed, that Kevin Rudd wants to become the United Nations chief. Well, up till now, Kevin Rudd has been denying he's a candidate. There's a couple of things in place about process that really even confirm that he's not a candidate. Well, guess what? Now Rudder gets an appointment. And then this morning I hear in Senate estimates that George Brandes doesn't even know about it, didn't even know about it. There's a captain's pick for you from Malcolm Turnbull to make a little safe exit for possible for Ruddock. So what the hell is he going to do? Is he going to support Helen Clark from New Zealand, who is a candidate with much more experience than, than Kevin Rudd for the chief position at the U- United Nations? Or is Rada going to support the Croatian candidate from East Europe? What is he going to do? If Kevin Rudd is not a candidate, what is he actually going to do in, in Geneva? And that question has not been answered, and it needs to be answered, and Ruddock is the one to answer it. You know, the man is tainted. The man is the first architect of offshore washing your hands and letting people torture. He is the chief architect of the new form of child torture in detention centers. He was the first one to organize offshore detention and razor wire detention. He's the one for Woomera and Baxter, and he is the one for offshore Nauru. That's his history. So there's a lot of questions to be answered, and they need to be answered in in the full glare of camera lights and television, and he needs to um, 
respond to the questions that need to be asked by journalists in Australia. And all the time he's worn the the badge of Amnesty International on his lapel. I know, but, you know, people hang it up on that, but that's not it. It's not the badge. It's his nastiness and his stupid ambitiousness after 22 years as a backbencher when Howard finally invited him on the ministry with that poison chalice of the immigration portfolio. And he instituted the nastiness of this country, still being applauded in liberal circles. He got a thunderous applause in 2005 when he walked into a big venue with a liberal um, conference going on. Thunderous applause. He's regarded as the hero of conservatives. These are the questions this country needs to address. And as long as we have prime ministers like Turnbull, who actually have the stupid audacity to give Ruddock this type of job, Australia still has a problem. It has a problem with its honesty, with its openness, with its racism, with its torture of asylum seekers. There is a big problem. And we've got nationwide other national leaders standing up and not taking it anymore. There's good things happening in this country, but we're very much an unfinished project. And that was Jack Smith from Project Safecom in Western Australia. And that's all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at four o'clock. So it's bye for now and stand by for Done By Law. <laughs>